Welcome to the third episode of Fundamentals, an equity-focused series on the Federated Hermes podcast channel. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. On the second episode of Fundamentals, Kunjal Gala, co-portfolio manager in our global emerging markets team, explored whether the impacts the coronavirus are having on everyday life will result in lasting effects for the future. In particular, Gala looked at the healthcare sector. Let's remind ourselves what he had to say. Health uh, institutions, public health systems are undergoing a, an automatic stress test situation. And once we come out of the virus, uh, governments uh, and officials will indeed have a look at their shortcomings, their gaps, and, and try to fill them. And in fact, uh, I just read over the weekend that the that officials in Shanghai have already put out a set of guidelines to improve the public health system and to make Shanghai as uh, a safe city over the next five years from a public health perspective. And they are going to deploy a lot of technology-based solutions to improve their preparedness for pandemics and just generally improve the quality of the health system. Since we recorded that podcast in April, we are all continuing to live and breathe the reality of that stress test. We've seen COVID-19 lockdown rules relaxed in some European nations as countries around the world plot their way tentatively through the crisis. Meanwhile, for markets, this has been a time of great dispersion. There has been a real split between winners and losers and so-called stay-at-home stocks, such as in technology and enterprise software, and sectors such as financials and energy. There have been days and entire months, such as April, which was the best S&P return in 82 years for a month of April, and the best month since 1987, which seem entirely at odds with mounting poor economic data. As we sit here in mid-May, we hear forecasts that it may take as long as 2021 to see a recovery. So maybe there is a sobering reality starting to set in. Today, I'm joined by Lewis Grant, a senior portfolio manager, and Louise Dudley, a portfolio manager on our global equities team, to discuss why they adopt an integrated investment approach that fuses fundamental analysis with systematic rigor. Welcome, Lewis and Louise. Hi. Hello. Before we dive into the global equities capability, let's begin with your personal journeys. Lewis, first, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be an investor and what brought you to the global equities team at Federated Hermes? Sure. So prior to joining Federated Hermes in 2008, I was working as a pensions actuary focusing on the traditional pensions and investment role within the actuarial world. But on the, the side, I was really beginning to develop an interest in building some of the systems and models that we used to do that. So I found myself building the valuation system and the asset liability models, economic forecasting models. And I found I was doing that increasingly as a hobby rather than part of my actual role. And in 2008, I had something of an epiphany. I decided to take what had become a hobby and turn it into my actual job. And so I moved closer to the markets to a more dynamic environment where I could use some of those model building skills and get more instantaneous feedback from the markets. And it's been a fantastic 12 years or so. We've, we've grown the team from two people with one portfolio managing essentially seed capital to a successful business and a really successful team creating new strategies and systems and thought pieces. And it's been very rewarding to, to really shape how the industry has thought about responsible investing over that time. Was there anything about that transition to the investment coalface that surprised you? 
You know, I often joke that moving from being an actuary with an 80-year time horizon to be an investor gives you so much more instantaneous feedback. But we are truly long-term investors. And I think that actually what surprised me was how we still need to have that same long-term horizon that we had in the actuarial world, even within the investment world. It's very interesting indeed. And Louise, can you tell us a little bit about your journey to be, be a member of the Global Equities team? Sure. Um, so I started um, with an engineering degree, not necessarily kind of thinking that I might want to come into finance, but very much kind of interested in the real world and um, what was making things work and also kind of problem solving and a lot of kind of uh, focus on tech and some of the kind of IT side of things. And it was only kind of following my degree that um, I realized I was less interested in um, kind of engineering and, and perhaps that type of um, kind of more hands-on um, part of the economy to actually looking at investing and actually joined originally the uh, Hermes EOS business um, to look at some of the governance and stewardship activities um, that were going on at companies. And and it was there really that I started to see a whole new world in terms of investing and how investors take a slightly different approach to just the kind of short-term accounting transaction nature of uh, the economy. Um, from there, I joined the Global Equity team in 2009 uh, with Guy and Lewis and um, you know, kind of built out the business. And I've been very fortunate to really be on the, the kind of the inside of developing some of the ESG tools that we have, um, looking at some of the ESG research, very much kind of being at the forefront of being able to integrate um, some of these types of wider considerations within investing. And certainly we've seen the growth in responsible investing um, over the last 10 years that's become more and more important and and I recognized when I joined Hermes uh, that they were one of the leaders of responsible investing and so certainly having that pedigree within this space um, has been great and certainly having access to great research and great people um, has been fantastic and actually I've gone on to recently join um, the board for UCSIF, the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association and that's, again, given me a, a slightly different lens on the wider UK um, sustainability uh, industry. And so so that's been quite useful as well in terms of looking at how that's broadened and the mainstreaming as well. Definitely. We're going to dig into that a little bit more later on, how you do integrate some of these factors across your strategy. But first, let's drill down into the global equities capability itself at the firm. If you look at the investment landscape, it's often said that quantitative and fundamental approaches invest in very different ways. However, I understand that you don't like to define yourselves as a pure quantitative investment group. Why is that, Lewis? So I first resisted the quantitative label when I realised that there are so many different definitions of what quantitative actually means. And people often have very strong opinions, often negative, of what a quantitative investment strategy is and how it will behave. And quantitative often conjures up these thoughts of high frequency trading and black box algorithms, which no one really understands, but they seem to make smart decisions. And then one day they blow up in spectacular fashion. That's really not 
who we are or what we do. And perhaps more broadly, the distinction between quantitative and fundamental is not as clear cut as some people think. There are approaches that universally people will call quantitative. I'm thinking the truly machine driven high frequency type approach. Again, that's not what we do. We're thinking about investing in a fundamental way, but we do so using quantitative tools. And I think quantitative tools are now used by almost all investors, be it a a simple screen or a risk model or an optimizer to help people determine appropriate weights. The truth is that that line between quantitative and fundamental is much more blurred than many realize. And so I think the way I'd describe our approach is as systematic fundamental analysis. It's systematic in that we automate the process as much as possible, but it's still a fundamental investment process looking to invest in companies and to value those businesses. We're not buying factors or exposures or just looking at short-term mispricing of financial instruments. And would you say that that is a distinction that many of your competitors might perhaps draw, that um, that that systematic fundamental investing? Do you think it's actually more common than we may think? So I think that a lot of investors who would classify themselves as fundamental would also show off some of the quantitative tools at their disposal, but would very much not like to be called a quantitative investor. And I think a lot of the quantitative investors would be very reluctant to ever admit that actually these models are not perfect. And these models do require a skilled user with good investment experience. And so we use these models wherever possible, but we are absolutely prepared to admit that sometimes our experience is more valuable than what the data or the statistics is telling us. And so we have a kind of a hybrid approach. And I don't see many people talking about that type of uh, investment process. How about some of the critiques, um, say, that a purist quantitative um, practitioner might adopt? They may say that humans are essentially fallible, that the best thing to do is to allow a quantitative model do its thing, essentially, and not uh, apply a judgmental overlay. Then that's exactly when things can go wrong. Do you think there's any merit in that purist view? So we absolutely believe that the the data and the models are usually the best way forward. I think that humans are fallible. I think we are very reliable at making unreliable decisions. We have a whole system of inbuilt biases. But equally, the data cannot capture the whole story. Every company you look at has something unique going on. And what we admit is that we need to use our experience to determine which of those different factors or exposures a company has is actually material. And we need to recognise when the models may break down and there might be something else going on. And I think the purist approach has a lot of merits, but I think you can't close your eyes to the fact that it cannot be perfect. And Louise, how would you um, speak to this hybrid approach? Why do you think it works so well? I think... um... Part of what makes it really good is that it's tried and tested. It's an approach that makes sense. When you you think about, as Lewis mentioned, that you can't 100% rely on a model or the idea that you can't expect as a fundamental investor without making use of some of the benefits of the numbers and the tools that we have, that you can get as good as you can be. And I think people recognise that the combination of using these two different approaches which have become somewhat blurred is beneficial and certainly you get the benefits of some of the kind of breadth of information the 
the range of um, data sources that are out there capturing the latest information, but also information going back in time and also some of that kind of forward-looking information as well, and then putting it all together. I think our investable universe, which is over 5,000 companies, we're just not able to look at that broad range of um, interactions without some type of tools or um, screening or model that helps you get to find where the material pieces of information are. Um, and really help to direct it. But I think the other thing as well that we've been able to demonstrate, you know, as we've run this strategy over 10 years now, that it, it does add value. Uh, and we have seen differences in performance versus um, both fundamental and quantitative investors. And when we think back to the underlying aim of the strategy that looks to deliver consistent outperformance and um, and therefore think about the idea of focusing on the upside but also focusing on the downside that also very much aligns to ensuring that we're using the models to avoid some of the behavioral biases um, that are there but also being paranoid and scrutinizing greater detail those individual company um, unique situations as well so I think it kind of comes together in delivering um, the kind of more robust type of performance that the strategy aims to deliver over time. I want to talk about two things one is the investor reception that quantitative strategies often get and the reaction that investors may have to maybe a sustained period of, of disappointment with some quantitative strategies and secondly how the quantitative approach has evolved in the current crisis we're in due to a pandemic. Firstly, on the investor side, and just going back to Lewis, you said you used to work as a pensions actuary. Often actuaries and consultants will occupy the, the under the same shingle. And investment consultants do have a desire to bucket strategies. And often there will be a bucketing of quantitative strategies. And I understand a recent survey found that after the outflows in 2009, still about 50% of institutional investors surveyed had a level of discomfort with quantitative strategies. What are the negatives that you perceive of some of the quantitative strategies that these investors are seeing and are still seeing, which is leading them to be a little less than enthusiastic? So I think following the financial crisis, we'd seen a period in which some of the typical investment factors that these strategies followed had suffered very badly. There, there was some very easy things to point out where certain factors had underperformed and people had lost well, significant amounts of money. And there were one or two very high profile quantitative funds, which did very badly, uh, somewhat embarrassed themselves by kind of hiding behind some of the statistics. And it created this very negative perception that you can't possibly follow a computer in investing because the computer will make mistakes. And we should have some expert who can oversee this strategy and is willing to step in when things become difficult. I find some of these um, arguments a little bit difficult because actually when you look at the data, quantitative funds have not tended to do any worse than active managers in general. And there have been periods when active managers have struggled and actually they tend to correspond fairly similarly to when and the extent to which quantitative funds have also uh, done badly. But I think there's something in our human nature that we we look for 
someone who is responsible and someone who essentially looks like us, who is in control of the process and actually having the confidence and the belief to let a machine make these decisions is perhaps slightly jarring with, with a lot of people. I, I can understand that. And in fact, I share that belief because it's why we have this hybrid approach. And how about you, Louise? I'm thinking of other areas such as maybe uh, the fact that many quantitative strategies are deemed a black box, um, that there may be an element of data mining involved. Are there other elements of traditional quantitative approaches that you dislike? So I think as much as possible, I I wouldn't like to say that I dislike quantitative approaches because I think they have their own merits. uh, And certainly, you know, they, they do very much form a crucial part within our investment process. But I think the areas that typically have been focused on as being quite negative, as you mentioned, black box, so not being able to understand what investors are doing. Um, and I think investors historically have been somewhat scarred by the financial crisis, as Lewis mentioned, by not being able to really fully comprehend what might happen or think about the implications of what some of these um, algorithms will be doing in unprecedented times I think we maybe learned from that a little bit such that we do more stress testing more alternative risk modeling particularly with the the proprietary tools that we have within the team to look at where um, stresses within the model might be Um, on top of that a quantitative model is only as good as the data that you give it so that's also a limitation very much based on you know what has happened before our ability to use that information to predict the future is based on certain rules and we know that you know that there can be step changes and certainly that there will be different periods um, where you know the historical rules won't work going forward and so, so that's a limitation as well but also the idea of being very tightly constrained by rules um, and not really understanding the underlying investment investments that you're holding um, is also somewhat um, can, be, can be worrying at times when companies increasingly you know put a lot of effort into how they report their numbers and uh, so it's important to go beyond just some of the quantitative metrics to apply our own experience to look at individual companies uh, and use that more gut instinct as well as some of the quantitative numbers as well. And that's a really nice segue into the next part, which was how are these hybrid approaches or this hybrid approach that you have, how is it adapting to the current crisis? I'd say one of the other criticisms that may have been lobbed at quantitative strategies is that they don't adapt, that the models are simply left as static really entities that do not adapt to um, to new information. And certainly you mentioned how it is only certainly as good as some of the past information and past metrics that have been used as inputs. We've seen recently, whether it be unemployment numbers or GDP declines, that we really are in unprecedented, uncharted waters here in terms of metrics that maybe the past is less relevant to the current forecasting future. Likewise, however, on the qualitative side, I would wonder whether with biases, whether the average fundamental investor is changing what they do very much. So how would you say your hybrid approach is adapting, if at all, to the current crisis? Maybe, Lewis, if you want to start with that. So the, the pandemic has clearly changed how we live our lives, uh, both in the short term, but there's clearly also going to be long term consequences. 
However, it hasn't changed the characteristics that make a good business. It hasn't changed the methodology of valuing a company. What's changed is some of the inputs that go into that process rather than the process itself. And I think that's true for both quantitative and for fundamental investors. It's not about changing what you do necessarily. It's really about having faith in what you do, but making sure that you're using up-to-date data. So, for example, obviously expectations for growth in many sectors will have changed. Many consumer discretionary businesses, the, the growth expectations have come down sharply. Some business models are just not sustainable under social distancing. And we're going to see margins come down in the short term. And then we're going to find out which of these businesses can actually survive at all in the long term. And this is why balance sheet strength has been so important to investors over the last couple of months. People want to be sure that their investments have got enough cash just to survive, just to be here in three months' time, in six months' time and beyond. But that doesn't change how we value businesses. We don't change our philosophy. We've always cared about the growth trajectory of a company about the sustainability of a business, about the underlying quality of a business. I think what would concern me more as as an asset owner is that in a bull market, some investors begin to pay less and less attention to things such as balance sheet strength, and they keep greedily buying growth companies. They can get a little bit carried away with momentum and sentiment, especially when you're in a low-rate environment like we've had. Those growth companies could look very attractive, and people forego the underlying quality. And then along comes some sort of exogenous shock, like a virus or previously the financial crisis. And then all that matters in the market is which companies have enough cash, who can actually survive. And so I think that it's less about adapting your philosophy and more about staying true to that philosophy, both in times of stress, as we have now, but also during the preceding bull market. You know, during that bull market, we saw companies with a good range of characteristics, We looked to ensure we were still buying high quality businesses, but of course we looked for companies with attractive growth and attractive margins as well. It was about having a blended, balanced risk budget. We didn't just follow the short-term market sentiment. And that allows us, when we enter a period of stress, such as the current market, we can just follow that same belief that our philosophy will work for the long term. And we know that we already have an exposure in the portfolio towards companies with good, strong balance sheets. And some of the trends that Lewis mentioned just there, such as the prevailing strength, say, of the the growth stock story versus, say, value stocks, and that's been persistent for many years now, and there's been no reversion to the mean at all. Louise, how is that translated into your model, which looks at many different factors? Are there certain factors that just have not worked over, say, the last 18-month period? And do you see anything in the last, say, two months that is changing about that? Yes, so certainly looking at the 18-month period, I think, the most significant underperforming factor that we've seen is valuation or value factors. And investors have been focusing on that, particularly in the last 12 months, I would say, as investors have felt that the market has got overvalued and they've looked at when the snapback, um, the kind of the relationship between value and growth or value and sentiment um, kind of does this reversal and we had seen a little bit of that volatility in 2019 but coming into this year actually as Lewis mentioned it's been the balance sheet strength the capital structure factors and also the profitability factors that that have uh, really performed and I think in the near term we're going to continue to see those types of companies, those types of characteristics outperforming 
because of the ongoing uncertainty that we that we currently face. And I think you know that uncertainty is due to persist um, at least through the end of the year when or until really we, we see some type of vaccine or some type of stability perhaps. But in terms of you know our strategy, again as Lewis mentioned, because we look at these diverse range of characteristics and the companies that we buy are not highly concentrated within a single factor, um, it does mean that when we do get these extreme movements that we are somewhat more protected, that the portfolio as a whole is more diversified, we're not so concentrated. And also the fact that at the moment what investors are buying, they're starting to look a long, longer term um, type focus. So rather than focusing on the near term because it is so uncertain, going back to, well, let's think about 2021, 22, 23, what are those companies? And going back to the fundamentals of those types of businesses, um, which are going to be there in the long term and are going to be able to deliver. In terms of being able to model what we are currently seeing, um, the other thing that we've been able to do is, although it has been unprecedented, we are actually able to model slowdowns in growth, big changes in oil price. And so in that way, we've also been able to ensure that our risk management processes that we have um, have enabled us to, to ensure that we're, again, not too concentrated from a risk perspective as well. And that's been a successful strategy as well. Well, certainly that is heartening that investors may already be focused on the medium and long term. It does seem remarkable that the short term focus after the crisis erupted was actually relatively short, it seems, relative to previous crises. Now we're just going to move to talk about responsibility. As every month on Fundamentals, we devote some time to talking about responsible asset management in a segment called Responsibility Works. There's been much media attention recently on how the coronavirus is turning the spotlight on sustainable investing. But when the dust settles, why will sustainability be important going forward, Lewis? And how has anything changed, if at all? There's been an awakening in society, essentially. And that, that sounds like a very grand term. But so many people are now thinking about how companies are demonstrating their commitment to all of their stakeholders, not just their shareholders. And I think that those companies that get this right will see rewards for their behaviour. So I'm thinking of things like the supermarkets who are finding ways to provide food for the more vulnerable members of society. At the same time, they're taking measures to protect their staff and to protect their, their customers, which are eating into their margins. This is long term building goodwill, but in the short term, this is going to reduce their profitability. We're thinking about companies that are looking after their staff through sick pay or health cover or improved working from home facilities. This is, again, building goodwill with their staff and helping those companies to attract and retain talent. But also that's improving their reputation with their consumers. And increasingly, consumers are looking to align themselves with companies that demonstrate positive behaviour. And on the negative side, we're seeing so much attention on those companies that are cutting their workforce, that are seeking to protect their dividends, companies that are taking bailouts and then either cutting staff or protecting dividends. There's a lot of negative sentiment around these companies because there are structural shifts coming from this experience. We, we've all had our eyes open to the vulnerability of the global supply chain. And while I wouldn't prophesize the end of globalization, it's not really a stretch to think we're all going to focus on local businesses and local supply chains going forward. 
more robust supply chains are absolutely crucial if we're going to get further waves of this pandemic or, or other shocks which are no doubt on the card. And we're also seeing cities that are suddenly experiencing clean air for the first time in who knows how many years. And there's a movement to keep it this way with suggestions that companies that are taking bailouts owe a debt to society and so should tie into the recovery sustainable goals such as energy efficiency, job retention, retraining programmes. We're suddenly starting to talk about sustainability in so many different areas of life. And it's no longer just the diehard believers in a small corner of society. It's now just everywhere in the mainstream news, the man on the street. People are suddenly aware of how important sustainability is to our lives. So while balance sheet strength has mattered in the short term, sustainability will be the determinant of the winners going forward. Louise, do you have anything to add to that? As obviously this has been a theme that we have had in our portfolios for some time. It's not just a a new theme that we're developing now. Yes, I think there has been a little bit um, focus in terms of some more thematic type strategies, which do tend to have certain structural biases, uh, whether that is from a factor perspective or whether that is from a sector perspective. So particularly where we've seen the energy sector underperform significantly and kind of healthcare and tech names outperform, strategies which have that as a bias um, within the types of names that they hold will have done well. And certainly we're seeing that. But it may mean that as some of those sectors do rebound or normalise somewhat over the next two, three years, then we may see some of those reversals coming through. So I think it's important to think about what are the drivers of the underlying underperformance of um, some of these metrics. The other thing that's uh, been quite interesting is, you know, ESG, good ESG companies um, perhaps doing well. Uh, And again, always there's a little bit of a bias towards some of the larger cap companies um, because some of their disclosures, because some of their capacity to think about some of these issues is a little better and again we've seen the kind of large cap names um, outperforming so again that's perhaps for some strategies another reason um, why those types of strategies might have outperformed but for us I think it's more about that we focus on the longer term growth stories within the equity space and also that we've been able to very much have good conversations with companies throughout this period because of the underlying engagement history that we have from speaking to companies we already have established relationships so that they understand when we talk to them about yes some of these near-term issues but also some of the longer-term issues we already have a baseline um, in terms of levels of understanding so I think that's um, been quite uh, kind of an important piece of information that comes to the fore um, more recently that stewardship and active ownership is um, is a good way of ensuring that you really understand your underlying investments within the portfolio. And I know, Louise, you did publish a thought leadership piece on climate change recently. I think based on the conversation we've just had, we can agree that coronavirus has not caused the climate change momentum to stall. It may be perhaps in the background, but it certainly um, is not off the agenda. What do you think investors should focus on now as they look to invest for a better climate? 
So I think, you know, we have seen a, a kind of a step up in ambition and that was already happening at the start of the year from companies, particularly uh, companies that are getting used to reporting in line with the TCFD and very much now welcome the idea of greater scenario analysis, particularly with the oil price coming as low as it has done um, and how that is good for them um, to ensure that they are well prepared for the for their business strategy uh, going forward. But I think the other thing that has happened with the delay of the COP26 um, being delayed until 2021 is that the ambition for that conference is going to be so much higher and that companies around the world, again, have been talking um, in terms of how they deal with the pandemic, how they share information, and that the COP26 in 2021 will be a real opportunity for company, for countries to agree something to demonstrate that they are working well with the foreign parties. And um, so that's something that hopefully we'll see a really big step change in terms of ambition and hopefully an additional kind of positive momentum issue um, behind some of the uh, kind of policy changes that will impact companies and will impact us as investors as well. On that note, it's time to sound the closing bell. But before we do so, I'd like to thank Lewis Grant and Louise Dudley from our Global Equities team for joining me today. That leaves me to present to you my key takeaways from today's conversation. So what do we learn? Firstly, I think when it comes to investment strategies, what's in a name is clearly quite important. Investors will act on it and maybe demonstrate some bias against it. So when it comes to quantitative and qualitative strategies, really understanding what each means and what each individual investment team means by that seems to be important. Secondly, based on this conversation, it seems that a hybrid approach and always using quantitative tools and even AI as a tool to really inform our qualitative and fundamental approach is the right approach, that it shouldn't always be seen as a binary approach between the two, or binary choice between the two. And third, now that we have a chance to orchestrate a reset due to this terrible crisis that is currently upon us, it seems that this is a chance to put ESG front and centre in all of our investment considerations. The current crisis has really led our imaginations to be exploded in terms of what's possible. And based on what Louise just said, it seems that we should allow ourselves to have ambition when it comes to climate change and other ESG goals. And finally, I know plenty of you are searching for podcasts to counteract the stress of the current lockdown. So here is another recommendation from me for this month. It's called Solvable. Solvable is a podcast which is a joint venture between the Rockefeller Foundation and Pushkin Industries. It challenges the world's most innovative thinkers to solve the most challenging and seemingly intractable problems. It might seem that this is a somewhat depressing area to be focusing on, given that we are currently in the middle of a seemingly intractable problem. But these problems are areas like child marriage, the spread of AIDS, mental health, cervical cancer, water shortages and electricity shortages throughout the developing world. What I found is that in speaking to these experts, it's really possible to come away with a feeling of great hope that it is often in areas of the most deprived conditions that some of the most innovative solutions can be found. I'll be back next month with another episode of Fundamentals. In the meantime, if you enjoy this podcast and don't want to miss upcoming episodes, please subscribe to the Federated Hermes podcast channels Amplified and Here and Now. You'll find these channels on iTunes, Spotify and Google Play. 
Until then, I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at the firm. Thank you for listening to Fundamentals. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results, and investors may not recover the full amount invested.